welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. So, welcome. I think that this is the third and final podcast featuring my discovery of George Mackay Brown, the late poet and short story writer and journalist who converted to Catholicism, among his other fascinating life pursuits and experiences. Last week, I told you I was about to read Ron Ferguson's biography, probably more of a psychological and spiritual study of Mackay Brown. This was in addition to the biography I had already read of Monica Ferguson, not related as far as I know. I'm glad I read both because they really complimented each other, beefed each other up, if you will. And Mr. Ferguson delved as best as one human being could possibly do with regard to another without being that person into Mackay Brown's complicated depths and in particular his possible reasons for becoming a Catholic. Mr. Ferguson's thoughts are based on the life experiences and writings of Mackay Brown and his in-depth interviews with people that Mackay Brown knew, which was really quite exhaustive. In some ways, oddly, I found myself a little overwhelmed with the facts followed by the speculations, all reasonable and possible. But ultimately, the idea of anyone knowing the soul of another, as I think Mr. Ferguson might even have noted, is an illusory one, particularly with respect to becoming a Catholic, a convert, unless one had a true Damascus experience, and I don't think most human beings ever have that. One thing uh, about this wonderful book, and I really would love to speak to Mr. Ferguson in person, he happens to be a Protestant minister, so very familiar with the history and struggles of faith. What was something that wasn't fully conveyed to me or perhaps understood about why someone might become and stay a Catholic, uh, it wasn't just quite there for me. Mr. Ferguson, not only a biography, but a friend of Mackay Brown, attended his funeral at the St. Magnus Cathedral, named after the very Magnus Erlinson that Mackay Brown so admired, and of whom he wrote and whose piety he admired and his strength of character in death. It was a Catholic Mass, and anyone who was not Catholic was not allowed the receipt of the Eucharist. The biographer, Mr. Ferguson, accepted it, but as many people are, they feel an unfair exclusion, a lack of charity, a failure, if you will, of ecumenism, a lack of welcoming, a discriminatory exclusivity. I've been looking through the poems of Mackay Brown, as many as I could so far, and probably I'm just scratching the surface, and I'm in search of whether he expressed directly how he perceived the Eucharist. I think Mr. Ferguson is right that Mackay Brown idealized Catholicism as he idealized the Norse and Celtic myths and his own physical landscape. And maybe I haven't fallen upon the poem where he directly addresses the Eucharist, but when one talked to him about being a Catholic or even about being a writer, Mackay Brown tended to circumlocute, avoid, not want to explain. Someone, I can't remember whether it was Monica Ferguson or Ron Ferguson, said that he would actually begin to hum 
to sort of avoid the, the subject. And both in Mackay Brown's book, his own autobiography, and Mr. Ferguson's one, you're left with the sense that it was literature, in fact, I think they actually say it, and Mackay Brown says it, that it was literature which inspired ultimately Mackay Brown to Catholicism without again direct reference to the transubstantiation and what that means to the Catholic who receives the host. Mr. Ferguson references that Mackay Brown was attracted to, quote, the beauty of the Eucharist, and that drew him in. If I might, there is one quote that gets sort of close to something direct when a priest who also knew George Mackay Brown interviews with him, with Mr. Ferguson. The quote is this, a sacrament may be defined as a living sign of God's love. More recent sacramental theology, the quote goes on, would start off with Jesus as the sacrament of God. Jesus is the primary sacrament. The church as the body of Christ, called to be the Christ in and from the world, is a secondary sacrament, end quote. Mr. Ferguson also references that it was the poetic, mystical tradition and the elaborate ceremony, pre-Vatican II, of course, which drew George Mackay Brown, and that by virtue of dying on the cross for us, we are unconditionally loved. He also talks about Mackay Brown liking the authority that the church provided, less so for my money now. The truth, the dogma, was not determined by a particular sect of those who had broken off from Catholicism or left only to individual conscience and interpretation. It was based on the tradition, the magisterium, and the Bible, all of which had survived a lot of knocks in time, space, and history, and still managed to survive somehow. There are quite a few references to the Eucharist throughout the book, one of the other closest to the point that I'm concerned with is a rendition of a story that Mackay Brown wrote called Master Halcrow. It's about the time just after Scotland became Protestant. The Catholic priests that have before held sway are not very good people. They are, of course, sinners, like we all are, some more so than others. Some live opening with women in sin. Master Halcrow is no bargain for that matter. At some point, all the priests are required to abandon, even cast off their priesthood. Now, this worldly sinful priest will not do that. And he begins to worry about the Eucharist, what will happen to it in this new order, the bread of heaven. Halcrow consumes the hosts that have been preserved by another priest who has renounced his vows. This is really close to the understanding of what is at stake, what is the host, but to me, and this is my opinion only, I leave it to you when you read the book. I hope you will, from Mr. Ferguson. It's called George Mackay Brown, The Wound and the Gift. And see whether you agree that even with all the explanations, the ultimate point about the Eucharist is not still fully apprehended. And I'm not, you know, I'm no expert, but this is what I understand from my reading, from my received tradition from the church fathers and all that went before me, that the receipt of the Eucharist is dependent on a very specific belief that what you're taking into your body and your very soul is God, not symbolically, not figuratively, not as merely bread like that which we eat for earthly life, but a lot 
a lot, a lot more special, supernatural. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, as real as if he were standing next to you, as he once did with the apostles. Catholicism is, in fact, inclusive. The ones who have broken away are all the other people and groups, because we're sinful human beings. We want it our own way. We remain sinful, trending towards sin, even after redemption, and we refuse to accept the unconditional love of God as present in the Eucharist by our breakings away. Unconditional, the unconditional love of God doesn't require us to love back. He'll love us whether we love him or not, whether we properly receive communion or not, whether we remain Catholics or not. But the manifestation, the fact of our love in return, is demonstrated in part not only by a good life, but taking him to ourselves in union with him. Inclusiveness does not negate the idea of a need for foundational principles or dogma, if you will. The agreement to these first principles thereby includes each and every one of us who freely chooses it. So the truth is, the church isn't keeping us out. We are keeping ourselves out by refusing to accept the first principles. And the concept of inclusiveness doesn't negate the need for obligation. Receipt of the Eucharist isn't a party favor, to be blunt, something we do as Catholics just to be social. It is the amen, the so be it to God. Jesus is not merely a sacrament of God. He is God. He is just as much God as the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so, when someone who isn't a Catholic and hasn't got that particular understanding, understandably, of what is being put on the tongue or who is being put on the tongue or in the hand, that's a debate of its own as to whether one should ever receive in the hand, but when that person takes this host, when he or she is not in fact in communion with the fact that he or she is receiving God, which Catholics are supposed to believe, it is not charity for the one who receives or the one who allows it to be received. I've seen people who you realize are not Catholic after they take the host, carrying it like it's a cookie, just an ordinary piece of bread, trying to take it back to their seats, hopefully intercepted. And when they do take it from the priest, instead of saying amen, which is fiat, so be it, they say thank you, like they just took an hors d'oeuvre. The receipt of communion, the receipt of God, is at the heart of all the sacraments. It is the central, visible sign, not merely of God's love, although it is that too, but of God himself in all his glory. I, of course, understand that I'm speaking from a bias of a practicing Catholic. And by the way, not necessarily a very good Catholic, I believe, but I'm, I struggle with my belief. I keep saying that. However, without that centrality, the essence of of what the Eucharist is, God himself, to which I say, yes, I believe that's God himself. All the other reasons to be Catholic could easily fall by the wayside. If that host is not Jesus Christ, son of the living God, if this isn't the Jesus who was raised from the dead, there's really no sufficient reason to be Catholic. Any other communion of good people who do good would be sufficient for me.
It isn't a failure to include, it's an invitation to be included. The Eucharist is something he tells us about, he offers to us because he loves us and he wants us to know the love of God on this earth as fully as possible. But we have to decide to be included. He'll love us anyway, but he allows us to walk away, just as the young man who walked away when he was told what he had to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're not strings. They're conditions precedent, as gravity is a condition precedent for us being able to stand on the ground. The only reason I'm remaining Catholic right now, when I find it embarrassing to be one, demoralizing to be one, particularly after the year plus we've had, and particularly because God's human administrators are behaving so badly as to nearly obscure God's goodness itself, and Diablo is scattering his vile lies among us, it's only because I believe that the Eucharist, as presented by the Catholic Church, the first, the original Church, I believe that that Eucharist, that transubstantiated host is God. And if I leave the church with all of its foibles, to put it mildly, I am in a way leaving God behind in the most precious form in which he could exist for me on this earth. So when someone receives him, receives this host without any belief, it's an insult to God who visits us and then resides in our body He'll love us, despite the insult, clearly, but the value of the sacrament is lost on us, or me, when I am in the state of sin, even though I am a Catholic. You know how a parent loves a child so much, but the child is always doing horrible things. Maybe he's on drugs or stealing and hurting others, and ultimately is so destructive that the parent has to let them go on in their devolving way. The parent will say, I love you. In order to save yourself, to be what you were meant to be, there are things you have to do. It's literally a matter of survival. The child says no. He exercises his free will, and perhaps he even dies of his willful infirmity. The love of the parent has remained unconditional. We are free to answer God's unconditional love with love of our own, or not. And in receiving the host, in receiving God, we are saying, we should be saying, that we love. Not to believe is to wound, not God, but ourselves, and to reject explicitly or implicitly what he offers freely. He will let us go if we want to go. Again, so far, I haven't found anything in what I have read, and I know there is a lot more that really pinpoints what Mackay Brown himself believed about the Eucharist. He simply has inspired me to talk about the struggle to believe and the centrality of that belief. And because right now we're debating this very issue about what it means to receive or not to receive the Eucharist. It is so critical that to not be as clear as possible is to, I think, completely eradicate the significance of Catholicism itself. The idea that people, Catholics, get to receive without proper preparation and understanding and disposition, and as we know, Catholics largely don't believe in the real presence, it's not just bad theology, but it's bad manners, and some people even say sacrilege. It's not that we're fit to receive, because no human being 
without full purgation will ever be fit to receive God himself into his body and soul. The key is that we believe when we do and that we are attempting to live a life that follows the precepts as articulated by the faith which we have born into or have chosen to be included into. We are to conform to him, not he to us. In the various things I read, Monica Ferguson's book, the autobiography of George Mackay Brown, and Ron Ferguson's book, it becomes clear that among the many attractions of Catholicism to George Mackay Brown might well have been the ceremony, which is something he admired in non-Catholic things, in the Norse tradition, in the tradition of the islands in which he grew up. But with regard to Catholicism, Mr. Ferguson, quote, says, the ceremony of bread is ancient and primitive, healing the wounds of the earth and putting life-giving food on the table. It also puts physical soul food on the holy altar for the healing and salvation of the world. That's true, but that's what I meant about not taking the extra step. And again, I don't know whether Mackay Brown did or didn't. I'm just talking about me as an ordinary Catholic and talking to other ordinary Catholics in terms of why it's so important to see something a little bit more and not to be hurt when someone says, unless you believe, you cannot receive. Because the physical soul food is the actual God of the universe. And that's why not everybody can receive because either one believes that or does not. And it matters whether you believe or not, as best as human beings can, obviously, because it is a struggle to believe this mystery. That's why we say it's a mystery. Your disposition, my disposition matters when I accept the host into my body. I guess what I'm saying is that the receipt of the Eucharist is the culmination, the raison d'etre of the ceremony. This is not just God that exists in the, the world among the birds and the trees and the oceans. It's God himself unto himself who is being received by you or I. If in the prior two episodes in which I talked about my discovery of this writer, I seem to be idealizing him, I guess I was. But I think I'm idealizing him in an odd way because of his struggle, because he m might not have been an easy Catholic. At some point he said something like, I'm a religious man, but I'm not a moral man. He was full of contradiction. Well, I can't imagine that any of us are not full of contradiction. He loved his mother, but he was not always kind to her. Uh, one of the things that Ferguson, Ron Ferguson, talks about a little bit more than I think anyone else that I saw was that George Mackay Brown struggled with a rage within him, a rage that may have come from his longtime illnesses, from his other sort of psychic liabilities, from his issues with regard to being, as some people say, repressed. I don't know. No one's going to know for sure. The fact that he was a man who ranted against technology, but used technology. Now in that, it occurs to me that 
I really do understand him because I look at the technology that we have right now and for some things I am relieved and happy but for 75% of it I find nothing but frustration. Everything that we do now with technology seems to take double the time it took just to mail a letter. You have to fill out this, you have to put in all sorts of codes, you have to go back to your cell phone and frankly there's a part of me that just hates it but yet I happen to have all of the conveniences in my house. That doesn't preclude me from saying there was a simpler time that I think maybe I preferred. What I think people are denouncing in any of these circumstances is the excesses that develop because of them because human beings don't know when to stop, like creating artificial life. Uh, I mean in, in a very small thing, whenever I'm trying to deal with something on the computer and I need to call someone to get a better explanation and I can't use the assistant on the computer because it's a bot. If I have a question that's more complicated and I try to call someone, I can never reach anyone. Well, that is an excess of technology that is not helpful and which is a distortion, if you will. You can appreciate aspects of technology but you can also denounce it because you see that it's going down a road that will ultimately lead to something like Skynet out of the Terminator. And it's already going in that direction. So what was helpful becomes, like all things touched by the devil, becomes destructive. And why? Because of sin. And more problematic because human beings are denying the effects of sin these days. I haven't said much about a particular love of his. He had a few women in his life that it appears he loved. And as I said in a prior episode, there were questions as to whether or not those relationships were romantic uh, in terms of being physically romantic or not. One woman, Stella Cartwright, who unfortunately also drank too much and died of her drink, was a very powerful relationship. And when you read some of the letters that Mr. Ferguson presents, you think, wow, they had the most intense relationship. It was on, it was off, they were engaged and they weren't. He could be distant from her, but also he could be so admiring of her. I mean, let's be clear, he had psychological issues that related to his relationship with women. There's just no doubt about that. You don't have to be a psychologist to know that. I suspect that, again, if you were to look at the largest part of humanity, you could probably say the same about all of us. But I'll tell you what, came to me when I read the letters or portions of the letters, what came to me is that they were truly soul friends. Whatever else their relationship was, they were soul friends at a level that most human beings never achieve. I just had this thought and after this I will actually read two of his poems, religious poems, and then leave you to find him yourself and appreciate him if you want yourself. People think of religion, Catholicism in particular, as somehow a self-deluding panacea, something that makes life easier. I've said this before, I think Catholicism, religion in general, but Catholicism in particular, makes life actually harder. And if you're already a contradictory person, it's harder still, because now you are taking on the responsibility to try to heal your contradictions with the grace of God. And because you fail so often and have to go to confession so often, it's enormously frustrating. And sometimes 
it is discouraging. Religion places on me, in relationship to God, a responsibility to love, which I have a choice to do or not to do. For all of us, as it was for Makai Brown, in his case, his relationship to Calvinism and to Protestantism and to John Knox and to all of the features of faith that were not Catholicism, it's all, it's all facets that sort of impress upon us and press upon us to try to heal our contradictions. And this is how he found his way through all of that and not completely and always struggling with depressions and drink and frustrations and fear. Sounds like most of us, doesn't it? <laughs> All I can say before I read two poems is, and I'm not saying these are necessarily the best poems, I'm just of his, uh, but certainly they're way better than anything I could write. And they certainly express a religious fervor that I think is one of the attractions to George Mackay Brown. But I have to say, reading Ron Ferguson's book and Monica Ferguson's book was a delight. I feel like I've been refreshed at a time when I've needed a great deal of refreshment. So I have enjoyed it and I recommend them to you. So the first poem is called Epiphany Poem. The Red King came to a great water. He said, here the journey ends. No keel or skipper on this shore. The yellow king halted under a hill. He said, turn the camels round, beyond ice summits only. The black king knocked on a city gate. He said, all roads stop here. These are gravestones, no inn. The three kings met under a dry star. There, at midnight, the star began its singing. The three kings suffered salt, snow, skulls. They suffered the silence before the first word. The second one I read that lots of people think this is one of his better religious poems. And again, I have to remind you that he's not specifically a Catholic poet or a religious poet. He wrote about lots of other things, mostly about the experience of the place that he lived most of his life, the Orkney Islands. Anyway, this one is called The Harrowing of Hell. I'm pretty good with words, but I actually had to look up the word harrowing. It's useful for me to do that before I read the poem. It's a word that means extremely upsetting and usually related to suffering. Something like extreme, excruciating pain. I'm even more embarrassed to say I didn't realize what the harrowing of hell meant as a concept and as a phrase theologically. Remember, he descended to the dead, and there were people awaiting the liberation, those who had died before the crucifixion. His death was a ransom, and he freed those who had been good, but before his salvific act had no place to go, could not be with God. So with that preamble, The Harrowing of Hell by George Mackay Brown. He went down the first step, his lantern shone like the morning star. Down and round he went, clothed in his five wounds. Solomon, whose coat was like daffodils, came out of the shadows. He kissed wisdom there on the second step. The boy, whose mouth had been filled with harp songs. The shepherd king gave on the third step 
his purest cry at the root of the tree of man and urn with dust of apple blossom joseph harvest dreamer counselor of pharaohs stood on the fourth step he blessed the lingering bread of life he who had wrestled with an angel the third of the chosen hailed the king of the angels on the fifth step abel with his flutes and fleeces who bore the first wound came to the sixth step with his pastorals on the seventh step down the tall primal dust turned with a cry from digging and delving tomorrow the son of man will walk in a garden i just had a final thought and i think it was something i read in ron ferguson's book and i can't remember for sure but there was a moment or a passage in which he relates that there was at least one or two times when the people of the village noticed that George Mackay Brown did not actually go up and receive communion. And I think it was particularly at a time when he was uh, busy with someone like Stella Cartwright. So, you know, again, we don't know what the total nature of the relationship was, but we do know that he didn't always go to communion. Well, that says something to me about the sense of the Eucharist that he may have had, whether or not he wrote about it directly. When he came to an idea on some Sundays that he wouldn't or couldn't receive communion, it says a lot about what he believed about he whom he would receive. Well, I don't think I did full justice, even in three of these episodes, to this this fascinating person named George Mackay Brown and his work. One thing I know is that being a Catholic ain't no easy thing, but God is asking us to persist, especially when it is hard. <laughs>